Section 1 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Central Criminal Court, May the 14th, 1856. The long-deferred trial of William Palmer, which, owing to the necessity of passing a special act of Parliament to enable it to take place in this court, has been delayed for a period of several months since the finding of a true bill by the Grand Jury of Staffordshire, commenced to-day at the Old Bailey, and notwithstanding the interval which has elapsed since this extraordinary case was first brought under the notice of the public, the intense interest and excitement which it then occasioned seem in no degree to have abated indeed if the applications for admission to the court which were made so soon as the trial was appointed and the eager endeavours of large crowds to gain an entrance to-day may be regarded as a criterion of the public anxiety upon the progress and issue of the trial the interest was seen to have augmented rather than diminished at a very early hour every entrance to the court was besieged by persons of respectable appearance who were favoured with cards giving them a right of entrance without such cards no admittance could on any pretence be obtained and even the fortunate holders of them found that they had many difficulties to overcome and many stern janitors to encounter before an entrance to the much coveted precincts could be obtained on the whole however the arrangements of the under sheriffs stone and ross were excellent and although there may be individual cases of complaint as there always will be when delicate and important functions have to be performed with firmness it is but justice to testify to the general completeness and propriety of the regulations which the sheriffs had laid down among the distinguished persons who were present at the opening of the court were the Earl of Derby, Earl Grey, the Marquis of Anglesey, Lord Lucan, Lord Denby, Prince Edward of Saxe-Weimar, Lord W. Lennox, Lord G. G. Lennox, and Lord H. Lennox. The Lord Advocate of Scotland sat by the side of the Attorney-General during the trial. At five minutes to ten o'clock, the learned judges, Lord Chief Justice Campbell, Mr. Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell, accompanied by the Lord Mayor and Alderman Sir G. Carroll, Humphrey, Sir R. W. Carden, Finnis, Sir F. G. Moon, and Sidney, Mr. Sheriff Kennedy, Mr. Sheriff Rose, Mr. Undersheriff Stone, and Mr. Undersheriff Rose, took their seats on the bench. The prisoner, William Palmer, was immediately placed in the dock, and to the indictment which charged him with the willful murder of John Parsons Cook, who died at Rugeley upon the 21st of November last, he pleaded in a clear, low, but perfectly audible and distinct tone, not guilty. The prisoner is described in the calendar as William Palmer, 31, surgeon, of superior degree of instruction. In appearance, Palmer is much older, and although there are no marks of care about his face, there are the set expression and rounded frame which belong to the man of forty or forty-five. His countenance is clear and open, the forehead high, the complexion ruddy, and the general impression which one would form from his appearance would be rather favourable than otherwise, although his features are of a common and somewhat mean cast. There is certainly nothing to indicate to the ordinary observer 
the presence either of ferocity or cunning, and one would expect to find in him more of the boon companion than a subtle adversary. His manner was remarkably calm and collected throughout the whole of the day. It was altogether devoid of bravado, but was respectful and attentive, and was calculated to create a favourable impression. He frequently conversed with Mr. Smith, his professional adviser, and remained standing until the close of the speech for the prosecution, when, at his request, his counsel asked that he might be permitted to sit, an application which was at once acceded to by Lord Campbell. The counsel engaged in the case were the Attorney-General, Mr. E. James Q.C., Mr. Bodkin, Mr. Wellsby, and Mr. Huddleston, for the Crown, and Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally, for the prisoner. The most respectable jury having been impanelled, and all the witnesses, with the exception of the medical men, having been ordered out of court, the Attorney-General proceeded, amid breathless silence, to open the case on the part of the prosecution. He said, Gentlemen of the jury, the duty you are called upon to discharge is the most solemn which a man can, by possibility, have to perform. It is to sit in judgment and to decide an issue on which depends the life of a fellow human being who stands charged with the highest crime for which a man can be arraigned before a worldly tribunal. I am sure that I need not ask your most anxious and earnest attention to such a case. But there is one thing I feel it incumbent on me to urge upon you. The peculiar circumstances of this case have given it a profound and painful interest throughout the whole country. There is scarcely a man, perhaps, who has not come to some conclusion on the issue which you are now to decide. All the details have been seized on with eager avidity, and there is, perhaps, no one who is not more or less acquainted with those details. Standing here as a minister of justice, with no interest and no desire save that justice shall be done impartially, I feel it incumbent on me to warn you not to allow any preconceived opinion to operate on your judgment this day. Your duty, your bounden duty, is to try this case according to the evidence which shall be brought before you, and according to that alone. You must discard from your minds anything that you may have read or heard, or any opinion that you may have formed. If the evidence shall satisfy you of the prisoner's guilt, you will discharge your duty to society, to your consciences, and to the oaths which you have taken, by fearlessly pronouncing your verdict accordingly. But if the evidence fail to produce a reasonable conviction of guilt in your minds, God forbid that the scale of justice should be inclined against the prisoner by anything of prejudice or preconceived opinion. My duty, gentlemen, will be a simple one. It will be to lay before you the facts on which the prosecution is based, and in doing so I must ask for your most patient attention. They are of a somewhat complicated character, and they range over a considerable period of time, so that it will be necessary not merely to look to circumstances which are immediately connected with the accusation, but to go back to matters of an antecedent date. I may safely say, however, that, in my conscience, I believe there is not a fact to which I am about to ask your patient attention which has not an immediate and most important bearing on this case. The prisoner at the bar, William Palmer, was by profession a medical practitioner 
and he carried on that profession in the town of Rugeley in Staffordshire for several years. In later years, however, he became addicted to turf pursuits, which gradually drew off his attention and weaned him from his profession. Within the last two or three years, he made over his business to a person named Thirlby, formerly his assistant, who now carries it on. In the course of his pursuits connected with the turf, Palmer became intimate with the man whose death forms the subject of this inquiry, Mr. John Parsons Cook. Now Mr. Cook was a young man of decent family, who originally had been intended for the profession of the law. He was articled to a solicitor, but after a time, inheriting some property, to the extent, I think, of some £12,000 or £15,000, he abandoned the laborious profession of the law, and betook himself also to the turf. He kept race-horses, and betted considerably, and in the course of his operations he became much connected and familiarly intimate with the prisoner, William Palmer. It is for the murder of that Mr. John Parsons Cook that the prisoner stands indicted to-day, the charge against him being that he took away that man's life by poison. It will be necessary to show you the circumstances in which the prisoner, Palmer, was then placed, and the position in which he stood relatively to the deceased, Cook. It will be impossible thoroughly to understand this case, in all its bearings, without those circumstances being laid before you, and it will be necessary, therefore, that I should go into them particularly. The case which, on the part of the prosecution, I have to urge against Palmer is this, that being in desperate circumstances, with ruin, disgrace, and punishment staring him in the face, which could only be averted by means of money, he took advantage of his intimacy with Cook, when Cook had become the winner of a considerable sum, to destroy him, in order to obtain possession of his money. Out of the circumstances of Palmer at that time arose, as we say, the motive which induced him to commit this crime. If I show you upon evidence which can leave no reasonable doubt in your minds that he committed that crime, motives become a matter of secondary importance. Nevertheless, in inquiries of this kind, it is natural and right to look to see what may have been the motives by which a man has been induced to commit the crime charged against him. And if we find strong motives, the more readily shall we be able to believe in the probability of the crime having been committed. But if we find an absence of motive, the probability is the other way. In this case, the motive will be matter for serious consideration, and inasmuch as the circumstances out of which we say that the motive arose come first in order of time, I will deal with them before I come to that which is the more immediate subject matter of our inquiry. It seems to me that it would be most convenient that I should follow the chronological order of events, and I will therefore pursue that course. It appears that as early as the year 1853, Palmer had got into difficulties, and that he began to raise money upon bills. In 1854 his circumstances became worse, and he was at that time indebted to different persons in a large sum of money. He then had recourse to an expedient, which it is important that I should bring before you. But, as it will become necessary for me to detail to you transactions involving fraud, and, what is worse, forgery, I wish to make a few observations to you before I detail those transactions. 
although i am anxious where i feel it to be absolutely necessary for the elucidation of the truth that those circumstances should be brought before you i wish that they should not have more than their fair and legitimate weight you must not allow them to prejudice your minds against the prisoner with reference to that which is the real matter of inquiry i cannot avoid bringing them forward but i would anxiously caution you and pray you not to allow any prejudice by reason of those transactions to operate against the prisoner for though a man may be guilty of fraud and forgery it does not follow therefore that he is guilty of murder among the bills on which palmer raised money in eighteen fifty three was one for two thousand pounds which he had discounted by a person named padwick that bill bore the acceptance of sarah palmer the mother of the prisoner she was and is a woman of considerable property and her acceptance being believed to be genuine was a security upon which money could readily be raised the prisoner forged that acceptance and that was if not the first at all events one of the earliest transactions of that nature by means of which for a long period of time money was obtained by him upon bills with his mother's acceptance forged by him this shows how when things came to a climax and he found himself involved in a position of great peril and emergency he had recourse to a desperate expedient to avoid the consequences which seemed inevitably to press upon him he owed in eighteen fifty four a very large sum of money on the twenty ninth of september in that year his wife died he had effected an insurance upon her life for thirteen thousand pounds and the proceeds of that insurance were realized and by means of them he discharged some of his most pressing liabilities in dealing with a portion of these liabilities he employed a gentleman named pratt a solicitor in london who was in the habit of discounting bills mr pratt received from him eight thousand pounds and mr wright a solicitor in birmingham received five thousand pounds and with those two sums thirteen thousand pounds of debt was disposed of but that still left palmer with considerable liabilities and among other things the bill of two thousand pounds which was discounted by padwick remained unpaid in the course of the same year he effected an insurance on his brother's life and upon the strength of that policy palmer proceeded to issue fresh bills which were discounted by pratt at the rate of sixty per cent who kept the policy as collateral security the bills which were discounted in the course of that year amounted in the whole to twelve thousand five hundred pounds i find that there were two bills discounted as early as june eighteen fifty four which were held over from month to month in march eighteen fifty five two bills were discounted for two thousand pounds each with the proceeds of which palmer bought two racehorses called nettle and chicken those bills were renewed in june and one became due on the twenty eighth of september and the other on the second of october when they were again renewed the result of the bill proceedings of the year was that in november when the shrewsbury races took place there were in pratt's hands one bill for two thousand pounds due the twenty fifth of october another for two thousand pounds due the twenty seventh of october two for the joint sum of one thousand five hundred pounds due on the ninth of november one for one thousand pounds due on the thirtieth of september one for two thousand pounds due on the first of january 
one for £2,000 due on the 5th of January, and another for £2,000 due on the 15th of January, making altogether £12,500. £1,000 of this sum, however, he had contrived to pay off, so that there was due in November 1855 no less than £11,500 upon bills, every one of which bore the forged acceptance of the prisoner's mother. Under these circumstances, a pressure naturally arose. The pressure of £11,500 of liabilities, with not a shilling in the world to meet them, and the still greater pressure resulting from a consciousness that the moment when he could no longer go on and his mother was resorted to for payment, the fact of those forgeries would at once become manifest and would bring upon him the peril of the law for the crime of forgery. The prisoner's brother died in August 1855. His life had been insured, and the policy for £13,000 had been assigned to the prisoner, who, of course, expected that the proceeds of that insurance would pay off his liabilities. But the office in which the insurance was effected declined to pay, and consequently there was no assistance to be derived from that source. Now in these transactions to which I have referred, the deceased, John Parsons Cook, had been to a certain extent concerned. It seems that in May 1855, Palmer was pressed to pay £500 to a person named Sargent. He had at that time, in the hands of Palmer, a balance upon bill transactions of £310 to his credit, and he wanted Pratt to advance the £190 necessary to make up £500. Pratt declined to do that, except upon security, upon which Palmer offered him the acceptance of Cook, representing him to be a man of substance. Accordingly, the acceptance of Cook for £200 was sent up, and upon that Pratt advanced the money. When that bill for £200 became due, Palmer failed to provide for it, and Cook had to meet it himself. In August of the same year, an occurrence took place to which I must call your particular attention. Palmer wrote to Pratt to say that he must have £1,000 by a day named. Pratt declined to advance it without security, upon which Palmer offered the security of Cook's acceptance for £500. Pratt still declined to advance the money without some more tangible security. Now Palmer represented this as a transaction in which Cook required the money, and it may be that such was the fact. I have no means of ascertaining how that was, but I will give him the credit of supposing it to be true. Pratt still declining to advance the money, Palmer proposed an assignment by Cook of two racehorses, one called Polestar, which won the Strosby races, and another called Sirius. That assignment was afterwards executed by Cook in favour of Pratt, and Cook, therefore, was clearly entitled to the money which was raised upon that security, which realised £375 in cash and a wine warrant for £65. Palmer contrived, however, that the money and wine warrant should be sent to him and not to Cook. Mr. Pratt sent down his cheque to Palmer in the country on a stamp as the Act of Parliament required, and he availed himself of the opportunity now offered by law of striking out the word bearer and writing order, 
the effect of which was to necessitate the endorsement of Cook on the back of the cheque. It was not intended by Palmer that, that those proceeds should fall into Cook's hands, and accordingly he forged the name of John Parsons Cook on the back of that cheque. Cook never received the money, and you will see that, within ten days from the period when he came to his end, the bill in respect to that transaction, which was at three months, would have fallen due, when it must have become apparent that Palmer received the money, and that, in order to obtain it, he had forged the endorsement of Cook. I wish these were the only transactions in which Cook had been at all mixed up with the prisoner Palmer, but there is another to which it is necessary to refer. In September 1855, Palmer's brother having died, and the proceeds of the insurance not having been realised, Palmer induced a person named Bates to propose his life for insurance. Palmer had succeeded in raising money upon previous policies, and I have no doubt that he persuaded Cook to assist him in that transaction, so that, by representing Bates as a man of wealth and substance, they might get a policy on his life, by which policy, deposited as a collateral security, they might obtain advances of money. Bates had been somewhat better off in the world, but he had fallen into decay, and he had accepted employment from Palmer as a sort of hanger-on in his stables. He was a healthy young man, and, being in the company of Palmer and Cook at Rugeley on the 5th of September, Palmer asked him to insure his life, and produced the form of proposal to the office. Bates declined, but Palmer pressed him, and Cook interposed, and said, "'You had better do it. It will be for your benefit, and you'll be quite safe with Palmer.' At length they succeeded in persuading him to sign the proposal for no less a sum than £25,000, Cook attesting the proposal, which Palmer filled in, Palmer being referred to as medical attendant, and his former assistant, Thirlby, as general referee. That proposal was sent up to the solicitors and general insurance office, and in the ensuing month, that office not being disposed to effect the insurance, they sent up another for £10,000 to the Midland office on that same life. That proposal also failed, and no money, therefore, could be obtained from that source. All these circumstances are important, because they show the desperate straits in which the prisoner at that time found himself. The learned counsel then read a series of letters from Mr. Pratt to the prisoner, all pressing upon the prisoner the importance of his meeting the numerous bills which Pratt held, bearing the acceptance of Mrs. Sarah Palmer, and these letters appeared to become more urgent when the writer found that the insurance office refused to pay the £13,000 upon the policy effected on the life of the prisoner's brother, and which Pratt held as collateral security. The letters were dated at intervals between the 10th of September and the 18th of October, 1855. On the 6th of November, two writs were issued by Pratt for £4,000, one against Palmer and the other against his mother, and Pratt wrote on the same day to say that he had sent the writs to Mr. Crabbe, but that they were not to be served until he sent further instructions, and he strongly urged Palmer to make immediate arrangements for meeting them, and also to arrange for the bills for £1,500 due on the 9th of November. Between the 10th and the 13th of November, Palmer succeeded in paying £600, but on that day Pratt again wrote to him, urging him to raise 
£1,000, at all events, to meet the bills due on the ninth. That being the state of things at that time, we now come to the events connected with Shrewsbury Races. Cook was the owner of a mare called Polestar, which was entered for the Shrewsbury Handicap. She had been advantageously weighted, and Cook, believing that the mare would win, betted largely upon the event. The race was run upon the 13th of November, the very day on which that last letter was written by Pratt, which would reach Palmer on the 14th. The result of the race was that Polestar won, and that Cook was entitled, in the first place, to the stakes, which amounted to £424, minus certain deductions, which left a net sum of £381.19. shillings. His bets had also been successful, and he won, upon the whole, a total sum of £2,050. He had won also in the previous week at Worcester, and I shall show that at Shrewsbury he had in his pocket, besides the stakes and the money which he would be entitled to receive at Tattersall's, between £700 and £800. The stakes he would receive through Mr. Weatherby, a great racing agent in London, with whom he kept an account, and upon whom he would draw, and the race being run on a Tuesday, he would be entitled on the ensuing Monday to receive his bets at Tattersall's, which amounted to £1,020. Within a week from that time, Mr. Cook died, and the important inquiry which we have now to make is how he came by his death, whether by natural causes or by the hand of man, and if the latter, by whose hand. It is important, in the first place, that I should show you what was his state of health when he went down to Shrewsbury. He was a young man, but twenty-eight when he died. He was slightly disposed to a pulmonary complaint, and although delicate in that respect, he was in all other respects a hale and hearty young man. He had been in the habit, from time to time, especially with reference to his chest, of consulting a physician in London, Dr. Savage, who saw him a fortnight before his death. For four years he had occasionally consulted Dr. Savage, being at that time a little anxious about the state of his throat, in which there happened to be one or two slight eruptions. He had been taking mercury for these eruptions, having mistaken the character of the complaint. Dr. Savage at once saw that he had made a mistake, and desired him to discontinue the use of mercury, substituting for it a course of tonics. Mr. Cook's health immediately began to improve, but inasmuch as a new course of treatment might have involved serious consequences in case Dr. Savage had been mistaken in the diagnosis of the disease, he asked Cook to look in upon him from time to time, and Cook had, as recently as within a fortnight of his death, gone to call upon Dr. Savage. Dr. Savage then examined his throat and whole system carefully, and he will be prepared to tell you that at that time he had nothing on earth the matter with him except a certain degree of thickening of the tonsils, or some of the glands of the throat, to which any one is liable, and there was no symptom whatever of ulcerated sore throat or anything of the sort. Having then seen Dr. Savage, he went down to Shrewsbury Races, and his horse won. After that he was somewhat excited, as a man might naturally be under the circumstances of having won a considerable sum of money, and he asked several friends to dine with him to celebrate the event. They dined together at the Raven, 
the hotel where he was staying, and had two or three bottles of wine, but there was no excess of any sort, and no foundation for saying that Cook was the worse for liquor. Indeed, he was not addicted to excesses, but was, on the contrary, an abstemious man on all occasions. He went to bed that night, and there was nothing the matter with him. He got up the next day, and went again on the course, as usual. That night, Wednesday the 14th of November, a remarkable incident happened, to which I beg to draw your attention. A friend of his, a Mr. Fisher, and a Mr. Herring, were at Shrewsbury Races, and Fisher, who, besides being a sporting man, was an agent for receiving winnings, and who received Cook's bets at the settling day at Tattersall's, occupied the room next to that occupied by Cook. Late in the evening, Fisher went into a room in which he found Palmer and Cook drinking brandy and water. Cook gave him something to drink, and said to Palmer, "'You'll have some more, won't you?' Palmer replied, "'Not unless you finish your glass.' Cook said, "'I'll soon do that,' and he finished it at a gulp, leaving only about a teaspoonful at the bottom of the glass. He had hardly swallowed it when he exclaimed, "'Good God, there's something in it! It burns my throat!' Palmer immediately took up the glass, and drinking what remained, said, "'Nonsense! There's nothing in it!' and then pushed the glass to Fisher, and another person who had come in, and said, "'Cook fancies there is something in the brandy and water. There's nothing in it. Taste it!' On which one of them replied, "'How can we taste it? You've drunk it all!' Cook suddenly rose and left the room, and called Fisher out, saying that he was taken seriously ill. He was seized with the most violent vomiting, and became so bad that after a little while it was necessary to take him to bed. He vomited there again, and again in the most violent way, and as the sickness continued, after the lapse of a couple of hours, a medical man was sent for. He came and proposed an emetic and other means for making the sick man eject what he had taken. After that, medicine was given him, at first some stimulant of a comforting nature, and then a pill as a purgative dose. After two or three hours he became more tranquil, and about two o'clock he fell asleep and slept till next morning. Such was the state of the man's feelings all that time, that I cannot tell what passed. But he gave Fisher the money which he had about him, desiring him to take care of it, and Mr. Fisher will tell you that the money amounted to between £800 and £900 in notes. The next morning, having passed a quiet night, as I have said, and feeling better, he went out on the course, and he saw Fisher, who gave him back his notes. That was the Thursday. He still looked very ill, and felt very ill, but the vomiting had ceased. On that day, Palmer's horse, the chicken, ran at Shrewsbury. He had backed his mare heavily, but she lost. When Palmer went to Shrewsbury, he had no money, and was obliged to borrow twenty-five pounds to take him there. His horse lost, and he lost bets upon the race. He and Cook then left Shrewsbury, and returned to Rugeley, Cook going to the Talbot Arms Hotel, directly opposite the prisoner's house. There is an incident, however, connected with the occurrence at Shrewsbury, which I must mention. About eleven o'clock that night, a Mrs. Brooks, who betted on commission, and had an establishment of jockeys, went to speak to the deceased upon some racing business, and in the lobby she saw Palmer holding up a tumbler to the light, and having looked at it through the gas, 
he withdrew to an outer room and presently returned with the glass in his hand and went into the room where cook was and in which room he drank the brandy and water from which i suppose you will infer that the sickness came on i do not charge that by anything which caused that sickness cook's death was occasioned but i shall show you that throughout the ensuing days at rugeley he constantly received things from the prisoner and that during those days that sickness was continued i shall show you that after he died antimony was found in the tissues of his body and in his blood antimony administered in the form of tartar emetic which if continued to be applied will maintain sickness it was not that however of which this man died the charge is that having been prepared by antimony he was killed by strychnine you have no doubt heard of the vegetable product known as nux vomica in that nut or bean there resides a subtle and fatal poison which is capable of being extracted from it by the skill of an operative chemist and of which the most minute quantity is fatal to animal life from half to a quarter of a grain will destroy life you may imagine therefore how minute is the dose in the human organization the nervous system may be divided into two main parts the nerves of sensation by which a consciousness of all external sensations is conveyed to the brain and the nerves of motion which are as it were the agents between the intellectual power of man and the physical action which arises from his organization those are the two main branches having their origin in the immediate vicinity of the seat of man's intellectual existence they are entirely distinct in their allocations and one set of nerves may be affected while the other is left undisturbed you may paralyze the nerves of sensation and may leave the nerves which act upon the voluntary muscles of movement wholly unaffected or you may reverse that state of things and may affect the nerves and muscles of volition leaving the nerves of sensation wholly unaffected strychnine affects the nerves which act on the voluntary muscles and it leaves wholly unaffected the nerves on which human consciousness depends and it is important to bear this in mind some poisons produce a total absence of consciousness but the poison to which i refer affects the voluntary actions of the muscles of the body and leaves unimpaired the power of consciousness now the way in which strychnine acting upon the voluntary muscles is fatal to life is that it produces the most intense excitement of all those muscles violent convulsions take place spasms which affect the whole body and which end in rigidity all the muscles become fixed and the respiratory muscles in which the lungs have play are fixed with the immovable rigidity respiration consequently is suspended and death ensues these symptoms are known to medical men under the term of tetanus there are other forms of tetanus which produce death and which arise from other causes than the taking of strychnine but there is a wide difference between the various forms of the same disease which prevents the possibility of mistake the learned counsel then explained the different symptoms which characterize traumatic tetanus and idiopathic tetanus which latter is of comparatively rare occurrence in this country but as this is a matter which will be hereafter dwelt upon with great detail in the medical testimony it is unnecessary to burden our report with it at any length here he then continued i have reason to believe 
that an attempt will be made to confound those different classes of disease, and it will be necessary, therefore, for the jury to watch with great minuteness the medical evidence upon this point. It will show that both in traumatic and idiopathic tetanus the disease commences with the milder symptoms, which gradually progress towards the development and final completion of the attack. When once the disease has commenced, it continues without intermission, although, as in every other form of malady, the paroxysms will be from time to time more or less intense. In the case of tetanus from strychnine, it is not so. It commences with paroxysms, which may subside for a time, but are renewed again, and, whereas other forms of tetanus almost always last during a certain number of hours or days, when we deal with strychnine, we deal with cases not of hours, but of minutes, in which we have no beginning of the disease, and then a gradual development to the climax, but in which the paroxysms commence with all their power at the very first, and terminate after a few short minutes of fearful agony and struggles in the dissolution of the victim. Palmer was a medical man, and it is clear that the effect of strychnine had not escaped his attention. For I have a book before me, which was found in his house, after his arrest, called Manual for Students Preparing for Examination at Apothecary's Hall. And on the first page, in his handwriting, I observed this remark. Strychnine kills by calling tetanic fixing of the respiratory muscles. I don't wish to attach more importance to that circumstance than it deserves, because nothing is more natural than that, in a book of this kind belonging to a professional man, such notes should be made, but I refer to it to show that the effect of poison on human life had come within his notice. I now revert to what took place after the arrival of these people at Rugeley. They arrived on the night of Thursday the 15th of November, between 10 and 11 o'clock, when Mr. Cook took some refreshment and went to bed. He rose next morning and went out, and dined that day with Palmer. He returned to the inn about ten o'clock that evening, perfectly well and sober, and went to bed. The next morning, at an early hour, Palmer was with him, and from that time throughout the whole of Saturday and Sunday, he was constantly in attendance on him. He ordered him coffee on Saturday morning. It was brought in by the chambermaid, Elizabeth Mills, and given to the prisoner, who had an opportunity of tampering with it before giving it to Cook. Immediately after taking it, the same symptoms set in which had occurred at Shrewsbury. Throughout the whole of that day and the next, the prisoner constantly administered various things to Cook, who continued to be tormented with that incessant and troublesome sickness. Again, toast and water was brought over from the prisoner's house, instead of being made at the inn, as it might have been, and again the sickness ensued. It seems also that Palmer desired a woman named Roney to procure some broth for Cook from the Albion. She obtained it and gave it to Palmer to warm, and when Palmer had done so, he told her to take it to the Talbot for Mr. Cook, and to say that Mr. Smith had sent it, there being a Mr. Jeremiah Smith, an intimate friend of Cook. Cook tried to swallow a spoonful of the broth, but it immediately made him sick, and he brought it off his stomach. The broth was then taken downstairs, and after a little while the prisoner came across, and asked if Mr. Cook had had his broth. He was told, no, that he had tried to take it, but that it had made him sick, and that he could not retain it on his stomach. 
Palmer said that he must take it, and desired that the broth should be brought upstairs. Cook tried to take it again, but again he began to vomit and throw the whole off his stomach. It was then taken downstairs, and a woman at the inn, thinking that it looked nice, took a couple of tablespoons of it. Within half an hour, she also was taken severely ill. Vomiting came on, and continued almost incessantly for five or six hours. She was obliged to go to bed, and she had exactly the same symptoms which manifested themselves in Cook's person after he drank the brandy and water at Shrewsbury. On that Saturday, about three o'clock, Dr. Bamford, a medical man at Rugeley, was called in, and Palmer told him that Cook had a bilious attack, that he had dined with him on the day before, and had drunk too freely of champagne, which had disordered his stomach. Now I shall show to you, by the evidence of medical men, both at Shrewsbury and Rugeley, that although Palmer had on one or two occasions represented Cook as suffering under bilious diarrhoea, there was not, during the continuous of the violent vomiting that I have mentioned, a single bilious symptom of any sort whatever. Mr. Bamford visited him at half-past three, and when he found Mr. Cook suffering from violent vomiting, and the stomach in so irritable a state that it would not retain a tablespoon of anything, he naturally tried to see what the symptoms were which could lead him to form a notion as to the cause of that state of things. He found to his surprise that the pulse of the patient was perfectly natural, that his tongue was quite clean, his skin quite moist, and that there was not the slightest trace of fever, or, in short, of any of those symptoms which might be expected in the case of a bilious man. Having heard from Palmer that he ascribed his illness to an excess of wine on the previous day, he informed Cook of it, and Cook then said, "'Well, I suppose I must have taken too much, but it's very odd, for I only took three glasses.' The representation, therefore, made by Palmer that Cook had taken an excess of champagne was not correct. Coffee was brought up to Cook at four o'clock, when Palmer was there, and he vomited immediately. At six, some barley water was taken to him when Palmer was not there, and the barley water did not produce vomiting. At eight, some arrowroot was given him. Palmer was present, and vomiting took place again. These may, no doubt, be mere coincidences, but they are facts, which, of whatever interpretation they may be susceptible, are well deserving of attention that during the whole of that Saturday Palmer was continually in and out of the house in which Cook was sojourning, and he gave him a variety of things, and that whenever he gave him anything, sickness invariably ensued. That evening Dr. Bamford called again, and finding that the sickness still continued, he prepared for the patient two pills containing half a grain of calomel, half a grain of morphia, and four grains of rhubarb. On the following day, Sunday, between seven and eight o'clock in the morning, Dr. Bamford is again summoned to Cook's bedside, and finds the sickness still recurring, but fails to detect any symptoms of bile. He visited him repeatedly in the course of that day, and on leaving him in the evening found that though the sickness continued, the tongue was clean, and there was not the slightest indication of bile or fever. And so Sunday ended. On Monday the 19th, Palmer left Rugeley for London, on what business I shall presently explain. Before starting, however, he called in the morning to see Cook, and ordered him a cup of coffee. He took it up himself, and after drinking it, Cook, as usual, vomited. 
After that, Palmer took his departure. Presently, Dr. Bamford called, and finding Cook still suffering from sickness of the stomach, gave him some medicine. Whether from the effect of that medicine, or from whatever other cause, I know not, but it is admitted that from that time a great improvement was observed in Cook. Palmer was not present, and during the whole of the day Cook was better. Between twelve and one o'clock he is visited by Dr. Bamford, who, perceiving the improvement, advised him to get up. He does so, washes, dresses, recovers his spirits, and sits up for several hours. Two of his jockeys and his trainer called to see him, are admitted to his room, enter into conversation with him, and perceive that he is in a state of comparative ease and comfort, and so he continued till an hour later. I will now interrupt for a moment the consecutive narration of what passed afterwards at Rugeley, to follow Palmer through the events in which he was concerned in London. He had written to a person named Herring to meet him at Beaufort Buildings, where a boarding-house was kept by a lady named Hawkes. Herring was a man of the turf, and had been to Shrewsbury races. Immediately on seeing Palmer, he inquired after Cook's health. "'Oh,' said Palmer, "'he is all right. His medical man has given him a dose of calomel, and recommended him not to come out, but what I want to see you about is the settling of his accounts.' Monday, it appears, was settling day at Tattersall's, and it was necessary that all accounts should be squared. Cook's usual agent for effecting that arrangement was a person named Fisher, and it seems not a little singular that Cook should not have told Palmer why Fisher should not have been employed on this as on all similar occasions. End of section 1